So have you ever been bored? You know, I mean, just staring off into space, you know, yawning. I mean, just completely mentally checked out. Well, there's some researchers recently at the Brighton and Sussex Medical School in England, and what they did was they took 27 people and they put some indicating markers on them. And these markers were all over in different places on their bodies. And and then they put each one of these 27 people at a different time in front of a computer. And the computer was able to read those markers. So the visual system on this computer could could see those markers. And, And what they did was they had each person reading that computer on the screen. They would read a couple of things. They would read sections of a novel. And then they would read sections of banking regulations. Now, wonder which one was more interesting of those two things, with apologies to my banking friends. I'd imagine probably the novel. But the computer was able to, by these markers placed on their bodies, see when the person was checking out. The computer was able to read the person and to know when they are getting bored. So, sometime in your near future, at work or at school, your computer will tell you that you are bored, that you don't like what you're doing, because of course we couldn't figure that out on our own. Well, I think the research really was primarily geared toward helping people when they started getting bored, that somehow they were going to try to find ways to help people when the boredom set in. If the folks from Brighton and Sussex Medical School were to come here and put marking indicators on you for the next few Sundays, it might indicate more boredom than excitement during the sermon. I don't know, maybe that happens every Sunday, I'm not sure. (laughs) But why is it that I would say for the next few Sundays that, that maybe there might be a little bit of boredom? Well, the reason why is because our subject matter is not fancy. It's not as the term goes, it doesn't sound culturally relevant at first glance. In fact, there's many people that believe that what we're going to talk about is not even something that is in the Bible. They say they don't even find it in the pages of the Bible. Some people say what we're going to talk about is it's just not that important. It's, it's secondary. It's nothing we need to focus on. Surely there's better things that we could look at. But what if I were to tell you that what we're going to look at for the next few weeks is actually the the greatest and the highest honor in the universe. What if I were to tell you that you could search the whole world over and you will not find an honor that will bring you more happiness, more excitement, more fulfillment, more joy, and more satisfaction? Now that doesn't sound very boring to me. So what is it we'll be talking about? Well, before I tell you, let me pull you in just a, a little bit more. So there's a guy, Jerry Morris. Jerry's from Valdosta, Georgia. Over the years, he has made it his practice to stick his head into flea markets and yard sales as he drives along. And and so one day, he stopped off and and he bought a picture frame for 30 bucks. Well, actually, it was a painting, but he bought it because his wife liked the picture frame. So he snags his $30 picture frame painting at a yard sale and come to find out that his picture frame painting, the the painting in the frame, actually was the original lithograph of the winning design for the Washington Monument. So his $30 picture frame with this painting inside of it turned into an art treasure valued at $2 million. Now, 
I can't promise you that my sermon notes one day will be worth $2 million to you. But I can say this, that what on the surface may appear boring is full of treasure. Just like the the random picture frame that Jerry found at a yard sale. What we have and what we will look at is something full of promise, full of value. So what is it? What is it we're going to be talking about? Well, cue the drum roll and the fireworks. Church membership. Oh, yeah, all right. Woohoo. I'll be back next Sunday for sure. I promise you, though, as we look and engage in this for your personal life, there will be great, great reward. So, what does it mean to be a church member? Well, let's find out. John chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus is praying for his friends. And this is what he prays. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. The math here is not difficult. God the Father uniquely loves God the Son. God the Son uniquely loves Christians. Christians should uniquely love other Christians and really should love other people as well. And so if you're looking for a sign that a group of people that claim to be a church are a group of people that Jesus would also claim to be a church, what you would need to look for is love. Just a few chapters back, Jesus said it this way, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how does that happen? How does love for one another happen within the church and among Christians? Well, the only way for it to happen is if we get the first part of Jesus' prayer. I in them. In other words, there's no way for there to be love between Christians if a person is not a Christian. So the question is, is Jesus in your life? Is Jesus in your heart and your mind and your soul? Or maybe asked another way, do you have saving faith? What is saving faith? Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, said this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. These are the basic facts of the gospel. But saving faith is not just believing facts. Saving faith is taking those facts and embracing those facts. Saving faith is committing those facts, committing what you know, committing your life, your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, your education, your vacation, everything about your life, committing who you are to the person of those facts. 20 years ago this week, I committed myself to marriage. I didn't commit myself to the idea of marriage. I committed myself to marriage. Because I don't, every four or five years, you know, go rent a church and a fellowship hall and bring a couple of platters of sausage balls and a bowl of fruit, a chocolate fountain, and and find a new gal to marry. Because I like the idea of marriage. You know, it's it's a cool thing, and, and maybe it's good for my life. No, I'm not committed to the idea of marriage. I committed to one person, period. 
Saving faith is committing your life to Jesus Christ, period. No other relationship has precedence. He becomes the purpose and the defining part of who you are. Tom Rainer shares the story of two friends named Michael and Liam, or Liam, for the four people that just got that. That's what I love. Maybe there was only one person that got that. He tells the story of Michael and Liam. They were a couple of buddies. They hung out all the time. They did stuff together. They went to church together is the big thing. And one morning they're hanging out in their breakfast joint, and and Liam drops kind of a bomb in the middle of the conversation. And he says, Michael, he says, I just want you to know, me and Lana, we're, we're going to be leaving the church. And then he goes on to explain why they're leaving. This is what he said. Lana and I went to the church to learn deep truths about the Bible, but Pastor Robert is just not feeding us. We're not getting anything out of his messages. Sitting in the service on Sunday morning is just a huge waste of our time. There's several great people in the church. You and Karen are the best. And there are a few more like you. But honestly, Michael, our church is full of hypocrites. Did you hear Jim at the kids' basketball game? He embarrassed me the way he was screaming at the refs. What kind of testimony is that for a Christian? Of course, everybody knows about Neil. He was supposedly this pillar of the church, and we find out he's been cheating on his wife for over a year. What kind of church is this with these kinds of people? Look, Pastor Robert acts like he cares for us, but I'm not so sure he does. I told him Lana's dad was in the hospital for hernia surgery, and he never even visited him. Michael, I really like you and Karen and your kids. All of you are a class act. But you seem so enthused about the church. You keep serving. You keep contributing. I mean, don't take me wrong, but but I wonder at times if you're blind to all the problems in the church. You know, we're really just two different types of church members. Why is that? Why do we have such different perspectives? Listen, there is no perfect church. And clearly there are times when a person should leave the church they're at, especially if the gospel is not being preached, especially if there is this really weird, casual, widely practiced ignoring of sin and immorality among the leaders and the members. So there may be a a time to leave. But Liam is talking in a way that acts like he likes the idea of church. He likes the idea of what a church is. But he's not talking like someone, at least it seems, like he's not talking like someone who's committed to the founder of the church. Someone who is committed to the one who suffered and bled and died so that the church would even exist. You know, what he describes, though, we could find in any organization in society, right? Ted Kluck says it's just like high school. Churches have cool people. Churches have dorks. Churches have the popular rich kid, the prom queen, the jock, the drama kids, and the rebels. He's right. Every church has them. But there's a big difference between just any organization in society and the church. And what is that big difference? Well, the big difference is, is is although all those different types of people may be in all those organizations, what makes the church different is I in them. See, Jesus is what makes this organization different. 
Jesus is what makes this group completely different from all the other organizations. I love how one pastor described their church and the people that were getting ready to join. He said this, This month we will be inducting new members into the most honored body the world has ever known, the Church of Jesus Christ. The initiation fee for this club is so high that no human could have ever paid it. God himself had to pick up the tab. The benefits of the club never expire. The fellowship of the club is unmatched. You receive intimate access to the Lord himself. See, better than the school honor program, better than the local civic group, better than the exclusive golf course, there's absolutely nothing that compares to being a follower of Jesus and being part of his church. Saving faith means that you're submitting to Jesus as the king of your life. Saving faith means that you're committing the purpose of your life to Jesus. Saving faith means that you are permitting your soul to see that Jesus Christ is your greatest treasure. And when you have saving faith, when you come to faith in Christ, you are saved not just randomly, you're saved into the church, and not just the universal church, but into a local church. Can you imagine somebody's mom calling the, the National School Honor Program and saying, hey, look, I, I would really like for my son to, to be in your program, but I just don't like the advisor at his school. She's just kind of rude and snobby, and, and I just don't want to be around her. So can we just join, you know, in, in the national office? Can we just do it that way? That's not how it works. You, you go through the school. You, you go through the local group. Or imagine some guy calling the International Civic Club and saying, you know, I really, really, really want to be a part of your club, and, and I really want to help out in the community and do good things, but, but you know, the, the president of our local chapter, he's, he's one of my neighbors, and he's just embarrassing. I mean, he, he put in a, a, a horseshoe pit in his front yard in our neighborhood. I, I just don't want to join the local group. That, that's not how it works, right? Well, in a similar way, Saving faith doesn't mean that you're just kind of this vague person in the universal church. That's not how saving faith works. Remember, Jesus said this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. All right, imagine that I am downtown in Little Rock at the Flying Fish Restaurant. Man, Rick's not here. Rick, are you here? You're not here. That's terrible. So Rick Wright's been to this restaurant. This is an actual picture of the real catfish. It's great stuff. So I'm sitting in the flying fish. And this guy comes in, and he's wearing a softball jersey. And across the front of the softball jersey, it says, Middle Picket Fence, Coswell Baptist Church. And on the back of the jersey, it has the number seven, and then over the number seven, it says, Pastor. So I could get up from where I'm going. I, I could go over and I could, I could introduce myself, tell him I'm a Christian, tell him I'm a pastor, give him a bro hug, and, and tell him I love him. But does that sound anything remotely like what Jesus seems to be talking about here? I mean, listen again to what he prays for his friends. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them 
even as you have loved me. Does anything about that sound like, you know, random bro hugs because you spot a church softball jersey? It doesn't. There's got to be more than just vaguely being a part of the universal church. Jesus also said this in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, Jesus has followed me. The the call to saving faith is a call to Jesus. The call is not primarily to a religion. It's not primarily to a denomination. It's not primarily to a church or a particular church. It's not primarily to a a particular pastor or a particular religious leader. Yes, it's, it's part of one local church, but not a specific local church. See, the call to saving faith is a call to the person of Jesus. First and most, the call of saving faith is a call to believe in Jesus and cling to Jesus and rely on Jesus and trust in Jesus as your ultimate and only and final source of hope and peace and satisfaction. When you look at how Jesus talked to his disciples, how he has passed down his calling to us, it looks something like this. Saving faith is when you look at the cross And you see your guilt-drenched penalty. And you see God the Father erasing your penalty through his innocent son. And you say, yes. Yes, I, I believe in that. Yes, I need that. God, help me. God, save me. God, rescue me. I have no other way to be rescued. I have no other way to be saved. Please, here I am, Lord. Save me. That's saving faith. Your heart can't say stuff like that and then just go back to life as usual. Just can't. Some people, though, don't feel like their heart ever needs to say things like that. They just really don't think they need to be saved. Some people think like this. Well, you know, a zebra can't change his stripes. You know, a leopard can't change his spots. I mean, I I am who I am. I just got to accept me for me. And other people need to accept who I am. They need to accept me for me. Some people aren't that nice about it. Some people say, who do you think you are? (laughs) Don't tell me what to believe. Don't, Don't force your morals on me. Who are you that you think your way is the only way? Other people have no concept that that they could be rescued. They have no concept that true love exists. They say, well, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what's been done to me. You don't know about my past. And then there's other people that that they think they have saving faith, but they don't. And and how? how? How could you think you have saving faith, but you don't? Well, here's just a a few things, just a a few things to consider. People who have a a false security that they are saved. One of the things is they made a public profession of faith one time. It is true that that a public response, a, a response to a gospel call, a gospel invitation might be the beginning of saving faith. But you can also say some magic words at a magic spot at a magic time and nothing happens. So it's not just a a public profession of faith. That could be a false security. Another false security might be that they had been baptized. 
You know, they, they made a public profession of faith and real quick they got baptized that night or the next Sunday or whatever. And, or maybe they got baptized just as a formality to try to get into the church. But they never really committed their life to Jesus Christ. Some people have a false security because they're involved in church. It's kind of like somebody said one time, just because the kid down the street is hanging out at your house all the time doesn't make him a true member of your family. Some people think that they're saved and, and everything's good because they're part of a Christian family. But you know, here's the thing. Salvation doesn't come in a family bundle plan. You see, the reality is you have to submit to Jesus yourself. You have to commit your life to Jesus on your own. And maybe one of the saddest reasons that some people have false security that they are saved is they have a wrong view of God. God is not a Build-A-Bear, you know? You can't just mix and match God. You can't just put together the, the kind of God that you would like, and once it's all said, hey, I, I think I like this one. A red flag that you've fallen into that trap is if you say this more than once a year. <laughs> well, my God would never do anything like that. Or my God is not like that. That's a good red flag that you're creating your own God. Because here's the thing, God is who he is. He's made himself pretty clear in creation and through the Bible. He had no reason to give us the Bible. He had no reason to write down who he is, but he did for our good. And so he's, he's given a pretty good picture of who he is. He is who he is. And you've heard me say this before. It's been said in different ways. The greatest terror in the universe is waking up on the other side of death and discovering that God is not the sweet old man in the rocking chair handing out candy to everybody, but that he is holy and he is perfectly just. Do you have saving faith? Do you have saving faith? If not, you could be a, a member in the records department at a church office and yet not be a member of the crowd that Jesus calls family. So this stuff is kind of heavy. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping you're feeling the heaviness of it. So, so what do we do with it? Well, what do we do with this heavy stuff? Well, we're going to stretch back to the 1850s for an answer. J.C. Ryle says this, Let me warn all careless members of churches to beware lest they trifle their souls into hell. Well, all right, J.C., tell us how you really feel. He goes on, You live on year after year as if there was no battle to be fought with sin, the world, and the devil. You pass through life a smiling, laughing, gentleman-like or lady-like person and behave as if there was no devil, no heaven, and no hell. Oh, careless churchman, or careless dissenter, careless Episcopalian, careless Presbyterian, careless Independent, careless Baptist, awake and see eternal realities in their true light. Awake and put on the armor of God. Awake and fight hard for life. Tremble, tremble and repent. You might be thinking, well, I was thinking about joining the church here at Holland Avenue, but now I'm terrified. I got to tremble and I got to repent and I got to fight. I don't know if I want to join after all. I know it sounds scary. It sounds, sounds heavy, but, but let me assure you that, that with those scary words are great promise. Because from the manger 
to the cross, to the empty tomb, to the gates of heaven. The gospel is crying out to you, tremble and be satisfied. Repent and find hope. Fight and be filled with joy in your salvation. Ted Kluck says this, at the end of my life, I want my friends and family to remember someone who battled for the gospel, who tried to mortify sin in my life, who fought hard for life, and who contended earnestly for the faith. Not just a geist guy who occasionally noticed the splendor of the mountains God created while otherwise just trying to enjoy myself, manage my schedule, and work on my short game. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered when when you're gone? How do you want to be remembered while you're still here? Now, I would hope that if people remember more of Christ in me than me, then I would have felt like I had a, a measurable success on this planet. But what does that mean, Christ in your life? What, what does it mean to have Christ in your life? Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist. He was an agnostic for most of his life. And then later in his life, he wrote things like this. I may, I suppose, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the street. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg of you to believe me, Multiply these tiny triumphs by a million. Add them all together and they are nothing. Less than nothing. A positive impediment. Measured against one draft of that living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. Being a member of a local church is the greatest and highest honor you could ever receive. Being a member of a local church is the greatest adventure you could ever take. Why? Because being a true member of the church of Jesus means that your soul is no longer thirsty. Your soul is no longer thirsty. You've found the living water. You've found water that never runs out. You've found water that satisfies you after the worst argument with your spouse. You find water that satisfies you after the most terrifying moment with your child. You find water that satisfies you in everything at school and everything at work and everything at the doctor and everything falls apart. All of a sudden, you have found water that never runs out. It satisfies all the time. And you go back again and again and again and again. That's part of what it means to be a church member. 
You see, to, to be a member of the church of Jesus means that you have been saved. It means you have been rescued. It means that you have been loved. It means that you are free. It means that you are bound to, unified with, connected to Jesus Christ, and you're connected to Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. My friend, there is absolutely nothing boring about that. To be connected to Jesus Christ is the highest treasure in the universe. And so when you are part of his church, you are saying with your life, I'm connected to the king. I'm connected to my savior. My savior who is coming again. My savior who is with me now. There is nothing boring about being a church member because there's nothing boring about being a Christian because there's nothing boring about being in Christ and being saved. May God give us a hunger and a passion and a joy with being his church.